morning. My name is Andy. I'm an elder here at North Shore. I'll be reading scripture and prayer this morning. The scripture this morning is out of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Peregrim write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even the day in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this morning, before I pray, I'd like to also read from Psalms 145, starting in verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, almighty, powerful God, we give you praise this morning, just as the psalmist did over 2,000 years ago. You do not change. As you were worthy of our worship then, you are worthy now. God, help us to understand your love for us. Show us your blessings and help us to understand your discipline. When our desires do not match yours or when terrible things do happen, help us to come to you for comfort. You sent your son to the cross so that we could come to you. Thank you. God, I pray today for the family and friends of Tiffany Gagnon as they grieve the loss of Carter. Lord Jesus, be with them and help them each moment. Lord, I also ask for you to help this church body to minister to all of those that we know who are hurting and in need. God, as you have blessed us, Help us to bless others.
God, with another round of COVID looming on the horizon, help each of us to be healthy and keep us from worry. Worry and anxiety will not add a moment to our lives. Let us put that aside and focus on the Lord our, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I also ask for your intervention in this country of ours, with the division being drummed up by politics and the elections coming this fall. Help all of us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to follow Jesus' teaching and example, that by being an example of love, we might draw another to Christ, that our Christian witness would be the one thing that others know about us long before our politics. God, help us to do this, as it will take your Holy Spirit and your power for us to live this way. God, and I pray for your hand to be upon our country's leaders. Guide them. Help them to help this country unite under God. For if you are not the lead that we follow, then this country could truly and would truly be blessed again as we follow your leadership. God, we want to see your name honored again as it should be, and that truth and love would be the standard that we all live by. God, we ask for these things and more, and we ask them through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father and our God, thanks so much for the chance to look into your word. God, your word is light, it is life. And so, God, give us life through your word. Illumine our hearts and our minds. Enable us, Father, to hear your word, what you're saying to us, so that we might, by your grace, love you more. Help me to communicate it in a way that would honor you and be usable by you, for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Okay, so today we return to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, chapters two and three. Jesus commands John to write the Revelation to encourage and to strengthen churches. Churches that were either at that moment under persecution or soon would be under persecution from the Roman Empire. We've looked at what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna, and today, as you heard from Andy as he read, we want to see what Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum. Like all of these seven churches, Pergamum was in what is today called Western Turkey. Pergamum was about 50 miles north of Smyrna and was more than any other of the seven cities intensely serious about pagan religion. They were all serious about pagan religion, but Pergamum was in a place by itself. In this part of the world, Pergamum was the center of worship for the foremost important pagan gods of the day. This city had major cults where Zeus was worshiped, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. All of those had important temples and shrines dedicated to them in Pergamum, and this city was perhaps known more than anything for its absolutely immense altar to the pagan god Zeus. But as important as those were to the pagan spiritual life in Pergamum, even more important to the pagan spiritual life in Pergamum was the worship of the Roman emperors. No city in this part of the emperor was no, more serious than Pergamum about worshiping the empire 
the emperors of the Roman Empire. Robert Mounts says in his commentary on Revelation that this was such an important part of the Pergamum spiritual landscape that of all the seven cities, Pergamum was the one in which the church was most liable to clash with the imperial cult. They were hardcore imperial worshipers. The pagans in per Pergamum were devoted in a way that nobody else was in this area of the empire, maybe in the entire empire, to worshiping the, the emperor. So if you were a faithful Christian and you refused to, for instance, offer incense to the emperor or bow down to Caesar as your lord, you could be in very deep trouble in Pergamum. We said earlier that one of the purposes of the book of the Revelation is revealed as the Apostle John, through this vision that he receives from Jesus, as he peels back the material layers of life in this world to expose the underlying spiritual and satanic powers that motivate and empower the human and political opposition to the church. Okay? One of the examples of the peeling back of what is seen to reveal what is unseen in the Revelation is the unique treatment that the Revelation gives to the person of Satan. The Gospels talk about Satan a lot. Jesus in his ministry, Jesus was bringing a new kingdom. Satan didn't like it, and so he responded, and Jesus spoke of that frequently. There was 25% of Jesus' ministry was deliverance ministry. And then you move to the rest of the New Testament, although Satan is certainly acknowledged, and it's clear that the, officers were, the authors were very much aware of his power and of what he was about, his agenda, and was warning the church to be devoted and to be vigilant. But in all of those letters from John and Peter and Paul, there just wasn't the frequency as in the Gospels. But when you come to the Revelation again, John mentions him with much greater frequency. In 22 chapters of the book of the Revelation, the Prince of Darkness is mentioned about 30 times. In the ESV, the Revelation, he calls him Satan nine times, he calls him the devil five times, and the dragon 13 times, amongst some other titles. The role Satan plays in his opposition to the church is nowhere more manifest among the seven churches than in this letter to Pergamum. In verse 13, Jesus says to his church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So in one verse, Satan is mentioned twice. Pergamum is where his throne is and where he dwells. In AD 95, when the book of Revelation was written, if you had surveyed the spiritual climate in Pergamum with your physical eyes, you would have seen large, impressive pagan temples and shrines and altars and other buildings connected with the worship of the pagan gods and the emperors. You would have seen several impressive monuments to the false gods that had enslaved so many people in Pergamum. But Jesus reveals the spiritual reality underneath all of that external expression of false religion, and he leaves no doubt about what's the source of it is. And he says that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. What that means is that Satan had set up his regional headquarters in Pergamum, okay? There are powers and there are principalities. There are princes over 
principalities or areas. And so Satan had set up his regional headquarters in Pergamum, his main base of operations, if you will, in Asia Minor. And that meant that he'd been given a unique level of authority and sway in this area. That's what's meant by throne. He had Pergamum uniquely in his grip, and that explains the greater concentration of eagle, evil pagan religions. Jesus wants the believers in Pergamum to know that Satan is the underlying cause of all the external expressions of the worship of false gods and emperors. The external monuments to false, to false gods, to false religion, are the dark and direct expression of Satan's power in this area of Asia Minor. And the increased levels of devotion among those who practice these pagan religions in Pergamum were demonically inspired. Okay? Likewise, as Jesus revealed with the church in Smyrna, it's obvious that the persecution suffered by the church was satanic in its origin. Now, as we move through this brief letter, we could say that the message that puts it all together for us to apply is the church must be vigilant to confront all the devil's schemes to destroy her. Paul tells us in the church at Corinthian, 2 Corinthians 2.11, we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes, okay? So Satan has a scheme, a design, a strategy for the destruction of every believer and for the destruction of every local church. And this letter gives us something of a case study, for Satan's scheme to attack and destroy the church at Pergamum. Various specifically tailored attacks as he works to destroy a local church here, in this case, in Pergamum. The local church, we must understand, is Satan's primary source of opposition, okay? Only the church is armed with the truth that can set him on his heels. Only the church is supernaturally equipped by the Holy Spirit to rescue captives from his kingdom. Only the church has the goal and the purpose of bringing glory and honor to his hated enemy, Jesus Christ. That means Satan bitterly hates the church. And today, as we look at this letter, we can divide John's treatment of Satan's spiritual opposition to the church into three sections. First, the nature of Satan's opposition. Second, how to respond to his opposition. And third, the consequences Jesus gives for obedience and or disobedience in response to his opposition. First, let's look at the nature of Satan's opposition. And in Pergamum, as in many churches, he employs multiple levels of opposition. From what Jesus says here, we know Pergamum faced simultaneous attacks on at least two fronts. The first front is the church in Pergamum faced persecution from the outside, okay? We see this in verse 13. Jesus commends the church for her faithfulness in the face of violent persecution. He says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus doesn't even mention who Satan used as his agents to persecute the church because that flesh and blood enemy is not the main enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12 says, but against the powers and principalities, against the rulers in high places. However, in the light of the rest of this letter, we know that the agent of persecution was the Roman Empire. A believer named Antipas 
was evidently placed in a position where he was forced to choose between compromise to Christ and death, and he faithfully chose to die rather than compromise his faith and betray Jesus. Jesus speaks of Antipas in affectionate terms. Literally, he calls Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. So he uses that possessive personal pronoun twice. He's mine. He's faithful. He's my witness. And the word translated witness is the Greek word martus, from which we get the word martyr. Satan brings persecution on Christ's church for this purpose, to tempt believers to compromise their testimony to Jesus in order to avoid suffering and or death. Okay? That's at the heart of the temptation. He tempts persecuted believers to live for the here and now, to live for what we can see and what we can feel and what we can touch. And if your heart has been captured by those earthly things, you're never going to make the choice to suffer and die for Jesus because Jesus isn't earthly, Jesus is heavenly. And the rewards that he promises for faithful believers is heavenly reward. Jesus calls on us to trust in him in the midst of our suffering, and he promises us that the reward for our faithfulness will be great in heaven. With the lure of comfort and safety from persecution, Satan tempts believers to abandon their faith in the midst of persecution. That's the nature of this first kind of external opposition he levels at believers in the church. And if you read publications like The Voice of the Martyrs, we have magazines out there. I don't know whether to recommend them. We probably should take all that printed material and take it off somewhere in light of the virus. But if you read publications like The Voice of the Martyrs, you will be blessed and you will be humbled because you will discover that this persecution, not mostly in the West, but in the East, is very real and very much a part of the church's daily life. About 11 believers die every day for their faith. In the history of the church, it's estimated that 70 million believers have died for the sake of Christ as martyrs. And of that 70 million believers, 45 million were martyred in the 20th century. So you can tell it's greatly increased in its number, isn't it? The point is, is that Satan continues to use this form of external opposition against the church, and the promise throughout the New Testament is, as the return of Jesus becomes more close, that's only going to increase. As harmful and as frightening as the external opposition of persecution is to the church, both the Bible and church history reveal that the attack Satan uses most frequently and most effectively is not external from without. The most Frequent, and the second form of opposition is internal, from within the church. And this can take at least one of three forms, two of which Jesus reveals in this letter. We see this in verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The first form of satanic attack or opposition from within the church in Pergamum is internal indifference. Internal indifference toward idolatry and moral compromise. Internal indifference. They allowed it to go on. 
toward idolatry and moral compromise or sexual immorality. Now, those are obviously two issues, moral compromise and uh, idolatry, but Jesus combines those two because the Bible combines those two frequently. All of the Old Testament and a whole lot of the New Testament, those are, those are put together. Wherever there is pagan idolatry, there is always sexual immorality. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, idolatry and sexual immorality are basically two sides of the same coin. It's the nature of pagan idolatry. The example that Jesus gives us from the Old Testament is about Balaam, and that's very helpful for us to understand what was going on, specifically here in the church of Pergamum. The story of Balaam, as many of you know, is in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. You may recall that the king of Moab, who Jesus talks about here, Balak, calls on Balaam to curse his people, or I should say God's people, Israel. Balaam is a unique individual in Scripture, sometimes a little bit hard to figure out, because on the one hand, he was familiar with the God of Israel, and in some ways, he did submit to him. But on the other hand, and this is a big other hand, he also engaged in divination and occult practices that were evil and condemned, okay? These practices were satanic, and that included these pronouncement of demonically empowered curses. Balak knew of Balaam's dark occult powers, and so he hires him to weaken Israel by placing demonically charged curses on the Jews. As you may remember, God personally and powerfully intervenes here. He forbids Balaam to curse Israel and commands him instead to verbally bless Israel, which ought to tell us something about the power of curses and blessings if God works at it like this. Much to the chagrin of the Moabite king Balab, Balak, Balaam blesses Israel not once, but three times. That would seem to portray Balaam as an ally of God and his people. However, he shows his true colors later on when he advises King Balak that the best way to defeat Israel is to have the Moabite women entice the Israelite men to defect from the Lord. And that would happen as they attempt to sexually seduce them and call them to join in their pagan worship, which again, two sides of the same coin. The scheme, as you may recall, was unfortunately wildly successful, and both the Israelites and Balaam were placed under the judgment of God. Balaam was eventually killed in battle by the Jews with the sword. The New Testament, both in 2 Peter and in Jude, highlights the fact that Balaam was also motivated in what he did by his greed. And so he's used in the New Testament as an example of false teachers who in their greed for money were willing to speak false teachings for profit. The point is, when Jesus mentions the teaching of Balaam in verse 14, he's drawing on an Old Testament comparison with what was going on in Pergamum. He compares it to the counsel that Balaam gave Balak to have Moabite women seduce the Jewish men into idolatry and sexual immorality. Jesus is warning the church at Pergamum that they have wrongfully, sinfully allowed false teachers into the church who were teaching some of the believers that it was all right to sacrifice to pagan idols and commit sexual immorality, two sides of the same coin. Again, 
In both the Old and the New Testament, sexual immorality was an important part of idol worship. Fornicating with prostitutes employed by the pagan temples, shrine or cult prostitutes, was part and parcel of pagan idol worship. It was one of the reasons why the Israelites were so powerfully attracted to the pagan religion. It became a snare to both the Old Testament Jews, but also to New Testament Gentiles who'd been converted out of that paganism into Christianity. And Jesus charges the church at Pergamum with irresponsibly allowing false teachers to operate within the church. They were sadly not working to correct them or expel them. Okay? At the heart of this temptation is to live like the world by worshiping things that are not God, and engaging in sexual sin outside of marriage. In verse 15, Jesus mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans as another example of the church's tolerance in allowing false teaching into the church. Most of the scholars, almost all of them, believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who were also mentioned in Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, that teaching is very similar to the teaching of Balaam. The point seems to be there were multiple sources of false teaching that the believers had allowed into the church, okay? We know from other places in the New Testament that often these false teachers would tell the church that because God is a God of grace and you've been given liberty, therefore, these kind of things were okay. That's the MO for a lot of these false teachers. That same argument was often employed to embolden believers coming out of a sexually permissive pagan background to commit sexual immorality. And very little has changed. Okay? Two of the biggest challenges to the church today is our internal tolerance to worshiping things that are not God. By trying to find our joy and our peace and our contentment in money and power and influence and reputation and possessions and hobbies, etc. Along with that is a tragic indifference to the sin of sexual immorality in the church. For example, in the general social study, general social survey, the GSS, in 2014 through 2018 combined, only 37% of evangelical adults said that sex outside of marriage was always wrong. So a little more than a third said sex outside of marriage is always wrong. While 41%, these are evangelicals or professed evangelicals, said it was not wrong at all. I think we're pretty far from the biblical standard there. Meanwhile, the GSS showed that among never married evangelical adults between 2008 and 2018, 86% of females had at least one male sex partner since age 18, while 57% had three or more. For males, 82% had at least one sex partner and 65% had three or more. The clear message there is that the church just doesn't take sexual sin all that seriously. Tim Keller used to say he pastored a church in New York where it was largely millennials, single, up-and-comers, and he said they were very attentive to most of the thing he preached on. When he went into teaching on sexual sin, he just turned off. He just knew they just stopped. They weren't listening anymore. That's, I think, fairly typical of an awful lot of what goes on in the West. We just more or less assume because sexual sin's going to happen, it's such a part of our sin-crazed world, you just don't make a big deal about it. That's what the people in Pergamum were doing, and Jesus threatens to judge them. Satan knows that perhaps the quickest way to drain off love for God from a believer 
the quickest way even perhaps to bring spiritual shipwreck to a believer or a professed believer is to, number one, dilute their love for God by tempting them to seek after the idols of this world. And second, it's to defile a believer's conscience and take them captive to the enormous, dark spiritual power of sexual sin. Jesus is telling us that we must be careful not to tolerate we must be careful to fail to confront either of those in ourselves and the church because they're part of Satan's schemes to turn the bold lion that is the local church into a tame kitten. And he's been radically successful in the West. A second expression of internal opposition from Satan is false teaching and our indifference to it. Now, as we said, in Pergamum, the false teaching is tied directly to the idolatry and the sexual immorality, but that's not always the case. If idolatry and moral compromise is ultimately the temptation to live like the world, false teaching is a temptation to think like the world. Some of you have seen the video, American Gospel. If you haven't, I certainly recommend it. We're going to be replaying it again in our adult Sunday school class at some point. It rightly chronicles the failure of large parts of the North American church to confront and eliminate false teaching. That's found in the Word of Faith movement and the prosperity gospel, but it's not limited to that. Two years ago, Newsmax compiled a list of 100 most influential evangelical leaders. Two of the top 10 are heretics. Joel Osteen, and Joyce Meyer. False teaching provides believers with the temptation to believe lies about God and the Bible for selfish ends. That's the temptation, to believe lies about God for selfish ends. And those selfish ends can be greed, as we saw earlier, as the word of faith, prosperity gospel teachers promote. But false teaching can also promote and be self-oriented in the sense that it promotes self-centered pride in forms of teaching that stresses graceless, performance-oriented legalism, okay? Jesus says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But false teaching is riddled with Satan's lies. And if it's not checked in the church and the teachers publicly disciplined by the church, those lies place people into spiritual bondage that can draw people to hell ultimately. A third and final form of internal opposition from the evil one, which is not even mentioned here, but it's so common it would be irresponsible not to mention it, and that is dissension and division within the church. We saw this in 1 Corinthians. The first three chapters are largely given to that. And that can develop in several ways, but often it evolves like this. Someone is hurt in the church. It's perhaps a legitimate hurt by the church, sometimes not. But rather than respond to the offense or alleged abuse biblically through honest and direct communication with those who hurt you and confessing whatever other sin that might be your part in that, you instead grow frustrated and angry. You begin to look at the church differently, which causes you to see all the bad things, okay? You begin to share those bad things, real or imagined, with others in the church, and before you know it, a firestorm of internal division breaks out that no one had seen, and it engulfs the church. And everybody says, my, what happened here? When the truth of the matter is, it might have been percolating for two years. And the reason it happened and broke out at one point is because people were tolerating divisive words and dissension. And that's where it happens. So many churches have been wrecked or greatly crippled by this form of internal satanic opposition. 
The second section on spiritual opposition from the letter is how to rightly respond to the devil's schemes, okay? The way to respond to external persecution, if not easy, is pretty clear. That is, be faithful to the point of death. Antipas did this. He loved Jesus more than this world, and when the choice between compromise and death arose, he chose to die for Jesus. It was that simple. We know that that involves enduring the trial by clinging to God. That's what's consistently taught in the New Testament, enduring, persevering by clinging to God. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it means at least three things. First, you live for eternity and not for this world. If you're living for a heavenly reward, then death will only get what you want sooner, okay? And you'll know for certain that it will be far better than anything this world has to offer if you're living for eternity. Second and related is you claim the promises. Living for eternity is impossible unless your hope for eternity is regularly fueled and strengthened and maintained by the promises of God, which richly fuel your faithfulness. Promises like Romans 8, 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. A final and very powerful and related way a believer endures to the end is by receiving encouragement from the body of Christ. This isn't done alone, okay? When you read about Christian martyrs, the encouragement from the church to remain faithful is crucial in that process. Fellow believers can remind us of the superior pleasures of heaven and of the promises that strengthen our conviction. The response to the internal opposition within the church, Jesus states in one word, repent. In verse 16, after naming these sins in the church, he says, therefore, repent. That is, by God's grace, think differently about your sin and allow that new God-given attitude toward your sin to cause you to urgently and abruptly turn away from it. Turn away from idolatrously trying to find your satisfaction and your pleasure in the things of this world, whether it be money or reputation or possessions or position or power or whatever. Turn away from sexual immorality, whether it be lust or pornography or premarital sex or any sexual activity outside of biblically defined marriage. Turn away from the toleration of false teaching. The problem with the church in Pergamum wasn't fundamentally that these things were going on per se. It was that the church was permitting them to go on. They weren't disciplining these sins within the church. The false teachers, with their encouragement to idol worship and sexual immorality, were not being shut down. They weren't being forced out like they were in Ephesus. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus, you remember, because they didn't put up with false teachers, okay? We know that Jesus is very concerned about dealing with sin in the church because he gives the definitive statement on how you do church discipline in places like Matthew chapter 18, okay? How you deal. He gives a clear plan for dealing with unrepentant sin in the church because he knows that's what you have to do. One of the reasons is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He asks the church in Corinth, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? His point is that unchecked sin in the body of Christ can spread. It's like a spiritual virus in the church. And if you do not expose and if you do not confront it with the light of truth, it will grow and potentially infect other people in the body. Okay? What church discipline looks like in the case of a divisive person who likes to stir up dissension, that's very quickly said in Titus 3.10. 
He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Okay, that's pretty unambiguous, isn't it? Warn him twice and then have nothing to do with him or her. Again, that's a form of church discipline, isn't it? If churches would be faithful to do that, there'd be far less church splits. Jesus concludes the letter by saying the consequences for both right and wrong responses to his call for repent, okay? To those who respond in obedience to his call to repent, Jesus makes a couple of wonderful promises in verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and that means either remaining faithful to the end in external persecution and or repenting of internal sins. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, the promise of hidden manna is pretty common. That's a metaphor in the New Testament for fellowship with Christ. Jesus in John 6 calls himself the bread of Christ, and we are to feast on him. He says, if you're not, eat my flesh and drink my blood, okay? So what Jesus means by the faithful receiving of a white stone is frankly not nearly as clear. The scholars argue about it. Nobody really knows for sure because there isn't a frame of reference. It's just not mentioned anywhere else, and so you have to kind of speculate. What we can know with some certainty is this new name, not previously known, is another name for Jesus. And we know that, we think, from Revelation chapter 19. Jesus is pictured as this victim victorious king erupting out of heaven on his white horse. And it says in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Again, the broad meaning is pretty clear. And that is eternal fellowship to Christ to the point where you know his most intimate secrets. That's what he's saying, okay? You can determine how intimate a relationship is by the things that you reveal to your partner, right? A spouse in a healthy marriage, you know most of your partner's secrets, good and bad, okay? But the self-disclosure in, say, a business relationship is not nearly as intimate as that. Jesus is saying, you're going to know my intimate secrets. That's incredible fellowship for those who obey. The consequences for disobedience, particularly in tolerating false teaching, idolaters, and moral compromise, Jesus lays out. He describes himself in verse 2 as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And later in verse 16, he reprises that. And he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, when you go to chapter 19 and the return of Jesus, we get some help with the symbolism of this two-edged sword. In verses 15 and 21, John says this about the conquering Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Verse 21 talks about the final judgment of the rebel sinners in this world, and it says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In both of those verses, the sword is the word of judgment spoken by Christ. Okay? There's not going to be any theatrical battle. Jesus is going to come. He's going to speak the word of judgment, and it's going to be over. That's what Revelation 19 clearly teaches. Jesus can create a universe with the word of his mouth, and he can bring judgment on the pop- two-thirds of the population of the world with his mouth. Okay? 
The sword of Jesus' spoken word is the most fearful weapon in, in, in existence, okay? No one can stand against them, and the sword will bring swift judgment on all of those who oppose Jesus. That tells us how important it is to Jesus for this church to repent, because what he's doing is he's threatening the church with judgment if they continue to tolerate what he hates. And this is not about believers losing his or her salvation. It's about not being a believer in the first place and proving that by not caring about what Jesus cares so deeply about. Okay? This threat of judgment is consistent with the threat Jesus later makes in Revelation 21.8. Therefore, he says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, which includes those who cave into persecution, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, which would include the false teachers, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's very sobering. Satan hates each local church, and he has a different scheme to destroy each one, depending upon the strengths and weaknesses of the church and the culture in which the church is located. And the main question that we need to ask ourselves in light of what we've heard today is, am I, by the way I'm living and ministering in my church and in my community, am I someone God can use to repel the forces of evil as I stand? Okay? Or am I often careless? in my spiritual walk? Do I have unrepentant sin that opens all kinds of doors to Satan in my life that he will use to walk into my church and work to destroy it? We have to understand, when we have unrepentant sin in our lives, that's an open door to Satan. And you know what? Because I'm one with you, that's an open door for Satan to me. We have to understand the communal nature of the church. We don't get this in the West, but we're one in Christ. We're united in Christ. And so if one member is opening their, their life to Satan and opening a door through unrepentant sin, that's going to have an impact on the rest of the church. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.16 that the local church is held together when each part is working properly. The reason he said that is because any person in a local church with unrepentant sin in his or her life can give Satan and his demonic horde increased and toxic access to the church. Again, in our highly individualized Western culture, we do not understand this, but that's the way it is. The call to us is the same as it was to the church at Pergamum. Do we tolerate false teachers by listening to them? Do we even know who the false media preachers are? Are we habitually placing things of this world ahead of Jesus? Family, friends, possession, money, power, reputation. Are we indifferent to sexual sin in the church or our own sexual sin? We need to confess our sin, lovingly confront those involved in it. May God grant us the grace to live faithfully so that we might know eternal life in Christ for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, these letters to the seven churches are not easy to read. And if we seek to understand them, they're even harder. But God, I am so grateful for Jesus. I am so grateful that we were chosen before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in him. I'm so grateful that part of the purpose of the church is to be holy, to be a bride without spot or blemish. And Father, that implies all of what we've been saying in these letters. Thank you that Jesus wants a holy bride. 
And God, we can never be holy in our own performance, but what we can do is more and more increasingly live out of a love for Jesus, a life that is more and more conformed to the Word of God. Father, I pray for myself. I'm not here. Father, I pray for anyone else who feels that very deeply. I pray, Father, that you, by your grace, would enable us, by the light of your word, to see our own sin, whether it's toleration, indifference, or whether it's just actively, proactively going after something that is evil. Father, enable us individually and as a church to repent for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.